Hello. You have discovered the Felon File. Felonfile.com is a podcast exploration and discussion of law enforcement, history, issues, and incidents in the Appalachian Mountains and elsewhere. Felon File is hosted by Scott Lunsford, retired police detective, sergeant, author and researcher. The Shade of Blue Stories for Felon File Today A Missing Young Girl Suspicions of Murder The Body Never Found A prominent Rockingham County, North Carolina farmer, Robert T. Williams is hung for her murder in 1860, a precedent-setting case in North Carolina law. It allowed the state to convict a person of murder without there being a corpus delicti. Better known as the body of the victim, it would be over 100 years before a similar case was heard in the state. Background Music Hard-boiled hosted by Purple Planet The sponsor for today's episode of The Felon File is The Salty Heifer Home Store and More The Consignments Lairways Antiques and Home Decor Located at 75 Roy Edwards Lane Mars Hill, North Carolina Contact Trish the owner At the Salty Heifer 75 at gmail.com Scott, we're recording Thank you, Victoria, and welcome back, guys, to another episode of Felon Files, a podcast exploration, as Victoria said, looking at the good guys, the bad guys, some unusual court cases, some unusual crimes, some incidents that have happened throughout history, the weird, the strange, and incidents that have occurred in the Appalachian Mountains, and beyond. Today we're looking at a 1860 trial, the trial of Robert T. Williams. And the reasoning why we're looking at it, it was actually a very important trial for the state and for law enforcement and court cases in general. It marked the first time in the Carolinas that someone was convicted of murder without actually having the murdered body there. We've seen arrests and convictions without the body or without the murder weapon just by watching the news or watching TV or reading. What makes this case interesting is the time frame. 1860, the Civil War was was just getting ready to get started. There was a lot of conflict going on about states' rights and the the upcoming war, secession from the Union, keeping the Union together. All this was going on. And in the midst of all of this, there was a young lady called Peggy Isley who lived with her mother and her stepfather in Rockingham County, North Carolina, which is north of Greensboro, close to the Virginia border. Now this nice family lived about a half mile from a gentleman by the name of Robert T. Williams. All indications show that Peggy Isley was very much interested in Mr. Williams. Mr. Williams was seeing another young lady. 
was seeing an older lady, a widow, but Miss Peggy was younger and apparently very attractive too. So they started seeing each other and it wasn't long before Miss Peggy Isley fell deeply in love with Mr. Williams. And at that point, she allowed him to take kind of advantage of her more than she should have. Their romantic get-togethers grew more frequent, and over time, and as nature will, Miss Peggy Isley got pregnant. But Robert Williams, with this bit of information, still had not proposed, still had made not arrangements to have to start a new family, possibly because he was looking at a marriage of financial additions to his family. And Peggy's family just did not have that. Now on Thursday, December 1st, 1859, around 10 o'clock at night, Peggy left her stepfather's home for a rendezvous with her boyfriend, Mr. Williams. She carried with her a calico frock, two petticoats, and a piece of cloth, and all of these items wrapped up in an apron. So it sounds a little bit like Peggy was moving out, or she had somewhere important to go and was maybe going to be there for a while. When she failed to return home in about two days, her mother and stepfather, of course, became worried. And friends and neighbors, they also became nervous and concerned. So, when that happens, a search was organized. Eleven days after Peggy's disappearance, one of the search parties gathered to inspect an area of Troublesome Creek, which ran through Mr. Robert Williams' property. One half of the group took one side of the creek and the other half took the other side of the creek and they went on up the creek to see what they could find. Now, I have not been able to find any documentation about why they chose that particular area. Maybe it's just that they got around to it at that point after searching because this is like 11 days into the search. Now, it didn't take too long walking the creek when one of the searchers hollered out and everybody hurried over to that particular location where yelling was coming from. That's where they found a burning log heap some 600 yards from Robert Williams' house. Somebody grabbed up a limb and used it to rake the logs and the coals from the center of the fire and unfortunately discovered under the logs were what appeared to be bone fragments. Now, since the fire was on Williams' property, the searchers figured he had to know something about the fire. And they left immediately going towards his house where they found him nonchalantly going about his regular uh, farm work. It took a little bit of arm twisting to get him to the scene of the fire. But by that time, there was, there was visible among the bone fragments tallow. This comes from the burning of the of a body, the fat turning into a, a waxy substance, almost like wax. You can make candles out of tallow. Williams denied knowing anything about the fire, 
or the whereabouts of Peggy. Now finally the, they realized that they weren't getting anywhere with these questionings. So they announced the larger party would continue the search the following day, that there must be something else there or another reason for the fire and the bone fragments. So they left. Now when the second search party made its way to the log heap the next morning, they found that the entire site had been dug up at William's direction by his son and a slave. There was no evidence that there ever had been a fire on that spot. Although nearby, they did find a hollow beech tree that was smoldering, where it appears that coals and other parts of the fire had been dumped into this hollow beech tree. Now, a month later, January 23rd, 1860, the Rockingham Corner and a third search party examined this same site where the bone fragments had been burned. The coroner made it known that he was planning to hold an inquest. Peggy was still missing, and it appeared to them that she might possibly have been killed and her body disposed of at that location. Now, the coroner questioned Robert Williams about the log pile and the bone fragments. Williams claimed that he had been preparing the site for a planning. He had planned on clearing the land for planting beds and ashes from the burned logs. He planned to use those as a fertilizer. He went on to say that he had been readying the planting bed and the beech tree caught fire and burned up. Now, anyone who listened to this had some trouble with William's explanation, mainly considering it was unlikely the site had been prepared or burned for a planting bed. One reason the common method of preparing ground involving burning was with the use of skids and other implements. Williams was a meticulous planter who was known to have used this method in the past. And nobody had done such burning or clearing in December. It just wasn't done. There wasn't a need for it. The latter part of January or even the month of February was considered way too early for preparing ground for tobacco planting. The coroner next examined the stump of the burned beech tree. He found a number of blackened bones in the tree stump. He promptly ordered the creek to be dragged which led to the discovery of three hairpins, a button, some coals that were believed to have been produced by the, the log fire, and some additional bones. After examining the bones and having someone else examine the bones to back up or to double check him, the coroner made his report. It was at that point that Robert Williams ended up being charged with murder. The three hairpins were considered to be critical, crucial evidence. Now, along with Robert Williams, William's son, Murray Williams, who would later turn out to be a preacher, was also charged with the homicide. And when spring came around, they had their trial. 
Remember, all we have are some bone fragments. We have no clothing. We have some hairpins that were found in a creek and a button from some clothing that was found in a creek. And you're going to be hard-pressed to possibly connect all these items to our missing girl. Now, among the first to testify at this uh, court hearing in 1860 were four different doctors and a dentist who stated that, that they recognized part of a human skull and a cheekbone among the bone fragments, part of the skull. Well, if you lose your skull or part of your skull, more than likely you've passed away. The dentist identified also some teeth found among the ashes as belonging to a human. He was sure that those were human teeth, though he could not say for sure whether they belonged to Peggy Isley. Now again, this is before x-rays, this is before DNA. This is basically looking at things and maybe using a magnifying glass to examine them. The prosecution brought to light an admission that Williams had said at one point when he was talking to some of his neighbors when he said, quote, he had no doubt of the death of Peggy Isley and that the bones found in the creek were hers, that her stepfather or some of his boys had knocked her in the head and thrown her body on the log pile. One of the newspaper articles I found kind of gave the impression that Williams wasn't trying really to place blame on anybody, but he was definitely trying to get his head out of the news, so to speak, by substituting somebody else for him. Next, remember our hairpins? Two witnesses were called in an effort to establish that Peggy Isley had been in the habit of using and wearing hairpins. Again, this is 1860. The first testified that Peggy often wore hairpins of the kind found in the creek, but she could not state with certainty that Peggy had been wearing those particular pins or that she had seen those particular individual hairpins with Peggy. The last they had seen Peggy was on December 1st. The next witness testified that Peggy had worn hairpins on a very regular basis and had done so for the last two to three years that she had known her before the event or before she went missing. Another witness was brought onto the stand that testified that Williams had been seeing another young woman in the neighborhood and that six weeks before Christmas, Williams new girlfriend had asked him if he had been to see Peggy Isley. Williams allegedly told her that this man found out from someone else that he never went to see Peggy Isley and that he never intended to court her. Those of you who have never seen a episode of the Beverly Hillbillies or the Andy Griffin show, Courting someone is basically dating. Now, a man named James Jones came forward 
And he also testified that in a conversation he had with Williams, Williams had said that he expected to die on the gallows at some point and that if he did have to go, he was going to confess to every illegal act he was guilty of, save for one. He would never divulge that he had anything to do with the murder of Peggy Isley. Now, the lawyers in this case, they earned their keep. The lawyers for the defense objected, of course, and asked the court to instruct the jury that there was no evidence identifying the hairpins and the bones that were discovered and brought to court as those belonging to Peggy Isley. The entire case, in fact, hung, if you'll pardon the expression, on this ruling by the judge. Now, the legal principle when we're looking at it, and most of you are familiar with this, is called corpus delecti, the basic element or the fact of a crime. Usually in a case of murder, this basic element or fact was understood and known to be the body of the murdered person. And this served as proof that a crime had actually been committed. This rule had come down to us from English common law, and it held that a person accused of homicide could not be convicted unless the death was distinctly proven, either by direct evidence of the fact or by inspection of the body. And at this point, we don't have a body. We have maybe some pieces of it that we don't know actually belong to our victim. Now, that line of thinking had some important adherence. Uh, going back to English common law, again, Lord Chief Justice Sir Matthew Hale stated, I would never convict any person of murder or manslaughter unless the facts were proved to be done or at least the body found dead. And Lord Stonewell, another English judge, was of the opinion that when a criminal fact is ascertained, presumptive proof may be taken to show who did it, to fix the criminal having there an actual corpus delecti but to take presumptions in order to swell an evoclivical and ambiguous fact into a criminal fact would be an entire misrepresentation of the doctrine of presumptions and justice. To quote Blazing Saddles, Now who can argue with that? Basically, what the old English judges were saying, murder could not be proven without a body. Yet there were some authorities who thought otherwise. Another famous jurist, J. Best, believed that the language of some eminent legal minds as Hale and Stonewall was just too broad. They were erring too much on the side of caution and that the general principle that they had, it had to be interpreted with considerable limitation. Now he went on to say, unless it pleases providence to give us a means beyond those our present faculties afford of knowing things done in secret, 
we must act on presumptive proof or leave the worst crimes unpunished. Where there is a presumption is attempted to be raised as to the corpus delecti, or our body in this case, that it ought to be strong. It ought to be strong. So I'm not exactly sure whether he says, unless you can see the future or be a clairvoyant and see into the past, you have to have firm physical evidence, firm belief and knowledge that a crime has occurred, the corpus delecti. It was said by, now other people, other jurists pointed out that to prove a murder without a body was necessary at times. Were it not, a murderer could, to secure himself from conviction, would have no more to do but to consume or decompose the body by fire, by lime, or any other known chemical, or to sink it in the unfathomable part of the sea. You don't have the body, you don't have the crime. Now, going back to Robert Williams' trial, the prosecution was trying to establish that the hairpins could be presumed to belong to Peggy Isley, a woman known to have worn similar articles in the past, that the bone fragments found with the hairpins could then be presumed to be those of Peggy Isley, and that Williams, who was a former lover and acquainted with the victim and possibly the father of her unborn child, had made contradictory statements about Peggy Isley to other individuals in the community, which I think would possibly be considered hearsay today. With all this information, Williams could ultimately be presumed to be her murderer. Now the fence, on the other hand, was trying to persuade the court that the identification of the hairpins as belonging to Peggy was not a reasonable presumption. No one had seen her wearing those particular pins at the time of her disappearance, and that the bones were therefore no more likely hers than anyone else's. All this information was put before the judge, and the judge ruled that the jury could hear this information and they did not have to disregard it. He instructed the jury that there was indeed evidence identifying the hairpins and bones as those of Peggy, while the fact that no one had seen her wearing them at the time of her disappearance, it weakened the force of the testimony of the two witnesses that had made the statement that Peggy wore hairpins. The judge stated that it did not discredit their testimony. He went on to instruct the jury that the circumstantial evidence in the case should be given the same weight as the testimony of one credible witness. So basically, the judge was giving the go-ahead of proving a murder in the absence of a body on the weight of circumstantial evidence. And it didn't take the jury long to find Robert Williams guilty. Williams, of course, appealed the decision of the lower court, but 
he lost the appeal. So convincing was the argument that it was held sufficient that the murder was performed in some way and manner and by some means and using some instruments and or weapons that were unknown to the jury, unknown to no one except for Robert Williams, who they said killed Peggy Isley. But the two courts in North Carolina were absolutely certain that he had done it, body or not. Interesting story, you might think. But remember, we're talking court precedents here. And there wouldn't be a similar case in the state of North Carolina until 1980s, about 120-some years later. And Peggy Isley's case of murder without a body would actually be brought up in those cases as well. Mystery writers love to throw things out to their readers that catch them and surprise them and something they weren't expecting. That's one of the joys of reading. For example, the, there was a story written in the 60s about a gentleman that had been brought up, like Williams had, for killing his wife. But there was no body. He was convicted anyway. And later, year, two years later, his wife shows up. She had skipped off with an unknown boyfriend and made it appear that her husband had killed her. So, of course, the court system and, and the state ended up releasing him, releasing the husband from prison just before he was to be executed. Now, was that the end of it? Not in that particular story. The husband ended up later killing his wife and then being caught going to trial and declared double jeopardy. He had already been convicted and found guilty and then found not guilty of the crime of murdering his wife. Therefore, he could not be tried again. An interesting spin, but in really in judicial work and in criminal investigation work, eh, that's not going to fly. It's a totally separate incident. But the story doesn't end with the hanging. Like most incidents that happened a long time ago, there's a lot of side stories that go with the facts and with the fiction as well. For example, according to a Mr. Bob Carter, Mr. Carter is a historical consultant for Rockingham Community College, and like myself, he is a big history buff, or as our spouses said, call us history nuts. He agrees that this was a precedent-setting case in North Carolina law that allowed for convicting a person of murder without there being the body of the victim or the corpus delecti. His documentation and research has shown what he thinks that this is one of the most sensational murder cases in Rockingham County history, if not the history of the state of North Carolina. He was actually related distantly to Robert T. Williams, our defendant, 
He described Williams as a well-liked farmer who owned about 250-some acres there in Rockingham County, and he had also had been appointed several times or voted in as a Rockingham County Commissioner, or what we would equate to uh, being a county commissioner today. His records show that he was married in 1837 to a lady who died in 1850. They had three children, Mary Jane, Angeline, and Murray L. Williams. Remember, Murray Williams was the teenager who was also charged with his father with a murder. Now, his documentation shows that Peggy Isley really had a, kind of a bad reputation. The stories in Rockingham state that Isley became pregnant in 1859, and she ended up pointing her finger at Mr. Williams, even though she probably had, according to, according to Mr. Carter, probably had some other boyfriends as well. And it was shortly after these rumors about her being pregnant and, da and the daddy being Mr. Williams started floating about the county that Peggy disappeared. Now his research doesn't show where Murray Williams was actually sent to trial. And I agree with his research that he was unable to find a court case involving the teenage son, Murray L. Williams, where he was charged. He was arrested but apparently it never actually went to trial. There's no documentation on it that I can find. There's plenty of documentation on Robert T. Williams, his dad being indicted and going to court on the case. Mr. Carter says that Robert T. Williams was hung in a low-lying meadow that today sits behind the National Guard Armory that is kind of a swampy area today. I've been past that area myself when I was in college, I was in that general vicinity, and I had no clue about the history of it. Mr. Carter has documentation showing that more than 1,000 people attended the public hanging, which was thought to be the largest gathering in the county at that time. And like I said before, Williams denied that he was involved with the murdering of Peggy Isley. But Mr. Carter is sure that the case doesn't end with Williams' execution. In his writings, he believes there's more to the story. For example, a former slave by the name of Julie Roach told many people the same story, that Robert T. Williams, the father, had tried to get her to kill Peggy Inslee. According to her story, Robert Williams and Murray Williams and Roach were in one of Williams' tobacco barns, where Peggy Isley was supposed to come to. Robert T. Williams tried to get Roach to kill Isley, but she just wouldn't do it. But she would never say who did kill Isley. She just said that Williams tried to put her up to it and offered her some sort of reward for doing so. Now, Roach wasn't a slave actually on Williams' farm. She had been hired from another farmer who did own her at that time, which was a common practice to rent out your slaves out despicable that is. And considering that time frame, even if Roach's testimony was presented, it wouldn't have been considered in court at trial because slaves weren't allowed to testify in court proceedings like that. And she told her story to family members up until her death. 
Mr. Carter had interviewed many people who heard her tell this story. Carter believes that Robert Williams was actually covering up the crime to protect his son. To quote him from one of his articles, I think Bob Williams could say on the gallows that he didn't kill Peggy Isley, but that he covered up the crime of his son instead. And of course, that makes him as guilty as the one who actually did the killing, but he would not claim and denied that he actually did the killing. Now, the son, after Peggy Isley's murder and her father's hanging, Murray L. Williams, he ended up joining the Confederate Army and ended up in Mississippi after the war. He got married, had 13 children, and became a minister and lived until 1934. Carter believes that Murray Williams had little to no communication with any of the family members still in North Carolina after the trial and after the Civil War. And there was something going on with that, he feels. Mr. Carter also has a copy of the final letter that Robert T. Williams wrote to his family. To quote that, just as false as that was, and by it the public putting a man to death upon the grounds of suspicion alone. And I am that man, and I know it, and I can lay my hand on my breast and say before God that I am clear of the charge, and some few know it just as well as I do. What do you think? Do you think Daddy did it, or the son did it? Yeah, it's something, something to consider in a case that changed North Carolina law. Well, I hope you enjoyed this story of Peggy Isley and Mr. Williams. Be sure to come back next week for another Shade of Blue story on Fallon File. We're working on having something good for you that I'm sure you'll find of interest. We'll be back on next Saturday at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And those of you that are curious, right now our standings for listeners, Australia is still beating out, is still beating out Great Britain. And we're actually having some listeners in China right now, which the Olympics are going on at the time of this recording when I pulled up those stats. Hopefully some of the visitors to the Olympics are felon file fans and have taken the Felon File podcast with them to China, where perhaps maybe they'll share it with some other people, where they'll perhaps share it with some other future listeners. So, at this point, in the meantime, if you'd like more information about this this podcast, you can go to felonfile.com or my website, scottlunsfordauthor.com. And check out my books, fiction and nonfiction, that I have available and links where you can purchase those. Also, some links to pick up some Felon File t shirts and coffee mugs, which would look great if you're going over to the Winter Olympics wearing a Felon File t shirt. Love to see that in the news. Thank you for listening. And until we come back again next Saturday, remember, if you have the opportunity, Do something nice for somebody. It's the right thing to do, and we need to be doing more of that. Make the world a better place if we possibly can.
We'll talk to you guys next week. This is The Felon File, signing off. Bye, y'all. You have been listening to The Felon File Podcast with your host Scott Lunsford. For more information on this podcast or Scott's books and writings go to scottlunsfordauthor.com and felonfile.com. Scott can also be contacted at these web pages. This is Victoria your producer. Thank you for listening. 2. 1. End.